Good morning. I hope that all of you had a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year and that your year is off to a good start. I'm sure that there are many New Year's resolutions just pumping ahead right now. We're still early in the game, so maybe it's going well for you at this point and you're pretty excited. Maybe it's already crashed and burned and you're here this morning just feeling a little bit of shame and failure. So I hope that our time together today will lift us up in the Lord. Either way, humble us if maybe we're exalted in ourselves, but also lift us up if maybe we're feeling a little bit like failures at even the beginning of this new year. If you would, please go with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. That's where we'll be today. <clears throat> this morning, we will be reaching back about a month and a half to continue our series in Genesis. So we were last in Genesis uh, at the end of November, and then we took some time to go through the prologue to the Gospel of John, those first 18 verses, as we looked at the word becoming flesh. We celebrated that at Christmas, and so we took our time uh, at Advent to go through that opening passage of John's Gospel. And then last week, I want to thank Mike Walpole, one of our elders, for preaching for us and helping us to better understand the will of God. What an important idea, and I hope that you were blessed by that. I trust that you were. And I pray that we will have a passion this year as we set out on 2019 for, as Mike said, doing the will of God, not uh, spending all of our time trying to find the will of God on a sort of search mission for something that God is hidden like an Easter egg somewhere, and you have to spend your life looking under bushes and, and everywhere else in gutters uh, to, to find it, but that you will do it, that we will do God's will in 2019, so clearly laid out for us in the Scriptures, and that we will have a biblical vision for life. Do you have a biblical vision for life? As you think about going into this new year, of all the things that you could focus on, it would be that. To have a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding of your place in the universe and the place of everyone else around you in the universe, where you fit and who you are. And there really is no better place to be than in the book of Genesis. We've seen that, that Genesis is so significant for establishing for us a Christian worldview. We've seen much about God. We've seen much about ourselves, much about sin about grace, about the nature of the world, how God works with his people. These are the things that we've encountered as we've been going through Genesis. And as we return today, we are looking at the life of Abram or Abraham. And this particular portion of Genesis goes from chapters 12 to 25. So throughout these chapters, we have the focus on Abraham. And after chapter 25, actually in chapter 25, that will turn to Isaac, and then we'll, it'll go on from there to Jacob. And at the end of the book of Genesis, we will have an extension of the narrative about Jacob as the spotlight comes on his one son, Joseph, who is sent off into Egypt by the, the sin of his brothers, but also by the sovereign will of God to Egypt so that the sons of Jacob would be saved from famine. And so, here, we're at the very beginning of that story. As we think about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's really a big picture 
a part of what Genesis is about, and here we're in the portion that focuses on Abraham. So who is this guy? Who is this man we've been talking about? He is the recipient of God's special call and promises. We get to chapter 12 in Genesis, and God calls him out of his country, sends him to a land. He says, I'll show you where. Just go. So he leaves his household, leaves his family, leaves everything he's ever known to an unknown destination. He is the recipient of many promises from God. They're just heaped up in chapter 12, and they get reiterated in subsequent chapters. He's the blessed man. We've seen that in numerous ways. God is with Abram. God protects him. He watches over him. He, as he promised before, he blesses those who bless him, and he curses those who curse him. He is the blessed man. And as Paul will make clear in the New Testament, he is the father of faith. That all of the faithful really go back in their spiritual DNA to this man, Abraham. We are seeing in him the quintessential believer. If you want to understand what, what does the believer look like? What is the, 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 the way of being for a person of faith? You really look no further than the narratives of Abraham. He is the quintessential man of faith. He is the father of faith. And we see the, all of these ideas of being the blessed man, the father of faith. I think we see probably two verses that bring all of this together in the best, most clearest way. In the best, clearest way. And that would be chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, where God says to him, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an incredible promise that God makes to Abram. I mean, he's just some random guy in many respects. He comes from a pagan family. His father and his father's father, they, they worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. Abram is just some guy from Mesopotamia. And God tells him, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that just gives you a sense for all that God has invested in Abraham. And then another very important verse we've covered so far is chapter 15, verse 1. And he, speaking of Abram, believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. So there we see that the extent of his blessedness, that this blessedness of this one man will overflow to the whole world. And we see the extent of his faith, that he has faith, and God reckons that faith to him as righteousness. In God's sight, Abram was righteous, perfect in his sight, through faith, based, of course, on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come many years later. We have seen his faith, his obedience, his strength of character. We've seen this fleshed out. I love this. Theology through narrative is, is just one of the best. I mean, that's the way that kids come to know who God is. You know, it's probably not the best approach to begin with your three or four-year-old reading uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and giving them an exposition, say, of the, that's, that's wonderful, and, and they need to maybe memorize some of that. And Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 is a good place to start. But the way that children, small children, begin to learn who God is is through the narratives of the Bible. 
They begin to see God's character fleshed out through his workings with his people. And we've seen that. In these narratives, we have seen in God's dealings with Abram, we've seen his faith, his obedience, and his strength of character. But, and there is a but here, we have also seen him making some foolish choices. Namely, two. Two pretty foolish choices. And before I go into these, briefly, I just want to say that in this respect, Abram helps us understand that as people of faith, it does not mean that we're perfect. It means that we, from the heart, are turned towards God. We are pursuing perfection, Christ-likeness. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus tells us. But it reminds us that the faithful are weak, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, in need of God's strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because in and of ourselves, this is what we get, what we see with Abram. At the end of chapter 12, at a time of crisis, instead of seeking and trusting God, what does Abram do? He relies on a reckless lie to ensure his own safety. There's famine in Canaan. He goes into Egypt, doesn't seek the Lord. On on the way, he looks over at Sarai, his wife. He says, I got an idea. Let's say that you're my sister. Now, she is his half-sister, but let's say you're my sister, i.e. not my wife, because you're so beautiful, and when the Egyptians see you, they're going to want you for themselves, then they're going to kill me. So this is what we'll do. We know that she goes into Pharaoh's house. God is still with Abram and protects, but it's a reckless decision. It's a foolish choice. It's a lie and a reckless decision regarding his wife. He is doing his own thing. How often do we do that? We do our own thing, just going about life in and of ourselves, doing what we desire, doing our own thing. He's living according to the flesh, walking in the way of the world, trusting in his own plans. Those are all really synonyms in one respect. And they all say the same thing. And that's what we have going on here with Abram in chapter 12. One other example comes to us in chapter 16. We see the same behavior encountered with regard to Hagar. And this was the last portion of Genesis that we covered, chapter 16. What we found there was that God has been promising offspring to Abram as innumerable as the dust and the stars. God tells Abram, look at the ground, and you see all all this dust, little specks of dust. That's like the innumerable offspring I'm going to give you. Then he says, look up into the sky. That dark, dark sky, far dark. Last night, I took some trash out to the bin, looked up, and it was just filled with stars. But there was so much light in the neighborhood. Imagine how many stars you would see on a clear night. Some of you have probably been in a place that's utterly black and dark, and you're able to just see so many stars. And so God says, when you look up into the sky, that's what you're going to see. When you think about that, think about how many offspring I am going to give you. So God tells him this, but on the one hand, but on the other hand, Sarai is barren. His wife cannot have children. And they are getting older and older and older. And they've been in the land already for 10 years. It's been a decade. Imagine a decade ago. That's that's a, a good while. It's been a decade since God called him out and sent him into this 
land. So Sarai comes up with a plan of her own. She wants to give God a little help. She says, you know what? I've got this maidservant, Hagar, this Egyptian maidservant. I'm going to give her to you, Abram, and you will be with her and reproduce through her. And since she's my maidservant, that'll be like my offspring coming through her. And and, and lest you think this is just really wild and strange, this was a, a common practice, actually, in the ancient Near East. But not for the people of promise, not for the people of God. And what does Abram do? He says, okay, let's do it. Independence, self-reliance, worldliness, passivity on the part of Abram, disregard for marriage and human dignity. All of that we find packed into the foolishness of Sarai and Abram in Genesis chapter 16. What's the result? Strife and a son who is not the son of promise. That's the result. That's what comes out of that. Lots of strife, both both in the moment and for years and years to come, both in that household and among nations, even today. In the Middle East. Goes back to this. Strife and a son who is not the son of promise. Abram loves his son, Ishmael. And yet later he will have to tell Ishmael and Hagar to leave, to go. This is the kind of turmoil and strife that's created as a result of this sinful choice. So that's where we left off last time in Genesis 16. And today we pick up 13 years later. It was It was fitting to have it end right there before Advent because now we really have a new chapter. I mean, it's been 13 years. We have nothing. We have no narrative material. In fact, it's been longer since chapter 16 to now, what we're going to pick up with today, than it was from all that we've covered in the story of Abram. From chapter 12 all the way to 16, it had only been 10 years. Then we have silence for 13 years, and that's where we pick up today. So you see, at the end of chapter 16, it says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then look at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. So we see this period of 13 years has passed. So what do we have in chapter 17? If you will stand with me for the reading of God's word. We are going to cover all of chapter 17 today, which is quite a bit, but we will do our best to take it all as one unit. So this is God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings 
shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So here we have the introduction of circumcision in the Bible. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. The Lord Jesus himself was circumcised. Verse 13. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. I think we all would have wanted to be there for that, to see what that would have been like. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. My understanding is that that would have been fairly painful. Verse 25, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. You can go ahead and be seated. That's a lot to take in. But let's... Let's do what we can to to dig into it and explore what's here. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help, and then we will jump in. 
Father, we are recipients of so many graces, one of which is the Holy Bible. We thank you, God, that you have inscripturated your word. You have given us the sacred page, as medieval theologians would often say. You have given us the Holy Scriptures. And God, as as your people, we know that we rise or fall based on whether or not we establish our lives on your word. So God, we pray that even this morning in this perhaps obscure passage to us living today as Christians, that we would be edified, that we would come to see you more for who you are, that we would come to walk before you blamelessly, that we would be obedient in faith, that we would grow through your word, God. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning, you can look in your bulletin for this, is The Covenant Confirmed and Sealed. God has promised land and offspring to Abram since the beginning. Chapter 12. But in chapter 15, we get this idea of covenant. Abram asks God a question. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God promises him land and his offspring will have the land. And he says, how should I know that I'm going to possess this, that you're promising me? And God's response is to make a covenant with Abram. We saw this word covenant appear with Noah. but Now we get it for the first time in the life of Abram. And this covenant is a visual binding confirmation of his promises. God walks through divided animals. Abram divides these animals, puts them on each side. And God walks through these animals divided, which was an ancient way of covenant making in which the parties involved are saying, may this be done to me. May I be divided if I don't keep this covenant with you. So what is God doing in chapter 15? He's visually binding himself to these promises. All these promises that he's heaping up on Abraham. When we get to chapter 15, he establishes a covenant where he visually ensures it before Abraham's eyes. And here in chapter 17, the language of covenant continues. Here the covenant is confirmed and sealed, hence the title And there's four things that we need to see, and you'll see these in your bulletin. Four things that we need to look at as we go through this covenant confirmation and sealing. And uh, out of respect for Mike, I figured I would keep the S's going from last week. If you were here, uh, all of his uh, points had nice S's in front of them. So here we go. Uh, By the way, most of my time will be spent on the first two of these. So let me go through them with you briefly. I'll just state them. So we have the scope of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, the son of the covenant, and the servant of the covenant. The scope, the sign, the son, and the servant. And I think that's how we are to unpack and understand what's going on here in Genesis chapter 17. So let's begin with the scope. The scope of this covenant. Look again with me at verses 1 to 8. Let's drill into those. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. 
Listen to what God is promising Abram. Verse 3, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There are essentially three things that God does in these verses, these eight verses. So I'm going to go through these. First, he reminds Abram of who he is. Abram takes, God takes Abram's eyes and he puts an arrow right upon himself. He's saying, Abram, know who I am. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai in Hebrew. The etymology of this word is unclear. Scholars debate. What is this idea, El Shaddai? Where, where does that come from? What, is it, what exactly does it mean? Traditionally, it has been understood to mean God who is sufficient. And when you look at the use of this name for God throughout the Bible, one of the key places that you need to look is in the book of Job. And there we find it being ascribed to God very frequently. And it denotes God's might in the midst of human frailty. So what it's highlighting about God is his, his omnipotence, his, his power, his might. But particularly vis-a-vis in relation to human frailty, human weakness. Where God's might becomes that much more pronounced. So that is the, the idea behind this name. And so... God begins this covenant establishing, this covenant confirming, this covenant making by saying, this is who I am, Abram. And if you notice, it's very interesting. If you go back to chapter 15, God did the very same thing there when he was giving the covenant to Abram. What did he say at the beginning of chapter 15? He said, fear not, Abram. I am, same thing, I am your shield. So chapter 15, before he says anything to Abram, he wants Abram to know that he is his shield, his protector. And here he wants him to know of his power. And I think this communicates one very important thing to us before we go down the road of this passage. And that is that God's promises don't appear out of thin air. You think about God making all these promises to us in the Bible. It's not as though God just shows up on the pages of Scripture and starts making a bunch of promises. They're just there in a vacuum. That's not the case at all. Hear this. God's promises are backed always by His nature and His character. Promises from God that do not have undergirding them, backing them up, His very nature and his very character aren't worthy of being believed. They're not worthy of of banking our life on. But promises that flow out of a trustworthy, reliable God who is almighty are worthy to be trusted. 
worthy to throw our entire lives upon and give all of our commitment to. And I think this tells us something very important about the Christian life. We need to know him to trust him. There's a kind of pietism. Let me explain what I mean by that word. There's a kind of, of pietism in contemporary evangelicalism that is, is very, it's kind of, you know, I would describe it in, 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 in terms of just being kind of warm and fuzzy. It's this idea that basically we just strip everything and just love one another. It's this very uh, stripped language of the Christian life. Just boil it down, just be nice, love one another, that kind of language. And all that's true. Of course we're to love one another. It's Jesus' primary command in the New Testament. So I'm not undermining that. What I'm saying is that when we strip all the details and all the robust truth about God from the Bible, we strip all that and we just water it all down to this very simplistic understanding of the Christian life. What we do is we fail to see that, the, that only, we can only trust a God we know. We can only know him if we know his word. We can only know him if we have filled out in our minds all the things he reveals about himself in the Bible. And it's only then that his promises mean anything. You cannot appropriate promises from a God you know nothing about. You would be a fool to do that. Because he may not be real. Just an idol, a figment of your imagination. Many people worship false gods and they give their entire lives. Buddhist monks... Give their entire lives, give up everything to follow a false God, a false ideal. We have to know him to trust his promises. We see this too with God's command to walk before me and be blameless, which could be rendered walk before me so that you will be blameless. So if I, if I tie all of this together, we need to know God's revelation of himself in order to walk before him. So follow the logic. We need to know what God has revealed to us about himself in the Bible in order to walk before him. Because who are we walking before if we don't know anything about him? In order to walk before him. And we need to walk before him in order to be blameless or to live an obedient, righteous life. You see the progression? Know him, walk before him, then we will live an obedient life. Life. What does it mean to walk before him? It means living before his eyes and under his watchful care. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you, are, are you doing that in your life right now? Are you, are you walking before the Lord in the sense that you are conscious of the fact that everything you do say and think is done in, in his presence? And are you conscious of the fact that you are walking under the watchful eye of your good shepherd? That you're like, a, you're like a sheep walking out and the shepherd's right behind you. You're looking up. Some of you have little tiny kids and they're out walking and in front of you. They, they look back to make sure you're there. To make sure you're watching over them. And that's God with us. That's what it means to walk before him. It's the only way we'll be blameless. Obedient. Righteous. So that's the first thing that God tells Abram is, look at me, know who I am. And the second thing that he says or does is he changes Abram's name to give him a further confirmation of his promises. Now, from this point forward, and I'll try to call him Abraham from this point forward, it'll be hard, I've been calling him Abram for so long, but now his name is changed to Abraham, father 
of a multitude. So that's the second thing. And God wants Abraham, every time Abraham hears his name, every time he thinks about, has to introduce himself, hi, I'm Abraham. Every time his name comes to his mind, he's reminded of the fact that God is going to keep his promises, that God is trustworthy and faithful. So that's the second thing God does. He changes his name. And thirdly, God restates and further clarifies the promises that he has given so far. A lot of these are repeated, as God has already stated. He will multiply Abraham greatly. We've heard that before. He will make him exceedingly fruitful. He will give his descendants all the land of Canaan in perpetuity. So we've heard all of that before. But there are some new bits here. Some new features that God reveals to Abraham. He says that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. Not just that God will make a great nation out of him, Israel, but that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. And we know that there are many different nations that shoot off of Abraham through Isaac. And even we have Ishmael and the nations that he will produce. But this points primarily, I think, to all of those who believe in Christ who become the offspring of Abraham. That through believing in Christ, we become, as, Paul's clear, as, Paul, as Paul clearly says, the offspring of Abraham. That nations, all the nations of the world today, this very hour, not this very hour, but all over the world this day, people from, from different parts of the world, very different from us, culturally, ethnically, are worshiping this God are worshiping God through Christ. Nations today in fulfillment of the promises that God made 2,000 years before Jesus, 4,000 years ago for us, to this man, Abraham. So that's one new feature. A second new feature is that kings shall come from you. This is something new. God has not told Abram up to this point that there would be royal lines that would come from him, but now God tells him, Kings will come from you. And I think what's especially in view here are the kings of Israel. Of course, David comes to mind, but this culminates in the king, the Christ. Remember at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in chapter 2, when you have the wise men coming? Who are they looking for? There's the star up in the heavens, and they're following this star, and they understand that this star will be pointing to who? The king of the Jews. Revelation 19:16 calls Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and Revelation 5:5 5, 5, referring to Genesis 49 calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. We know as we get to the end of Genesis that Abraham will have Isaac and Isaac will have Jacob. Jacob will have 12 sons. One of those sons name is Judah and Judah will give rise to the royal line. Just like Levi will give rise to the priestly line, Judah will give rise to the royal line. And so the descendants of Judah will be the kings. And that's why Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christ will come from you. An everlasting covenant relationship will exist between God and Abraham and his offspring. That's the third thing we see here. The third new feature, God promises an everlasting relationship between himself and Abraham's descendants. And so let me just tie all this together. If we're trying to 
identify the most outstanding feature of these promises, it would be the scope or the extent of them. Numerically, Abraham will be exceedingly fruitful, father of a multitude, geographically, all of the land of Canaan, temporally. It will be everlasting. Do you see the scope? Innumerable people, innumerable time, all the land. But most importantly, I want you to see how this scope comes to fruition relationally. The heart of these promises that God makes to Abraham are in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Let me tell you what this means. You read that, you say, okay, what's that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. All those who believe in Christ, as I said before, are the offspring of Abraham. Right here, in this portion of Scripture, maybe that you haven't even read before, perhaps. In this place, right here, God promises that he will be a God to you forever. You will never lose him. He will never leave you. Each of us who is a Christian will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you felt like you've already walked through the valley of the shadow of death in your life. But at some point, each of us will will truly, quite literally, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Who knows when, but it's coming. And in that hour, we can rejoice, even in that hour. Because we know that absent from the body is present with the Lord. And not just for a short time, but everlasting. He will be a God to us forever. And the promise of that we associate so clearly with the New Testament goes back to Genesis chapter 17. God will never leave us nor forsake us. When Jesus says that, he must have the promise of Genesis 17 in mind. I will be a God to you and your offspring forever. So we see the scope of the covenant. But now let's get to this very strange thing called circumcision, the sign of the covenant. Look at verses 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. To state it briefly, the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, along with his descendants, will be this thing called circumcision. The removal of the foreskin from the male genitalia. That's what it is, in case you didn't know. I don't know if I had to define that. 
but that is what circumcision is. Why this? I mean, think about it. You, know, you come to this and you think, okay, God is making a covenant with his people and he wants them to do something as a sign and seal of the covenant. And this is what he chooses. It seems a little strange, I think, on the surface. Why this? Well, one thing to consider is that circumcision was already being practiced in the ancient Near East. The Egyptians practiced circumcision, not for any covenantal reason, but they just practiced that. This was not a new idea. It was not a new practice, but it was being newly applied or freshly applied to this particular situation. And I think there are several reasons why circumcision. In case you've ever wondered, let's go into that just for a moment here. So first, it is a constant reminder that all of God's promises go back to the promise of a seed. So think about it. All of God's promises in the Bible, every single one of them, goes back to what God promised Adam and Eve when he said that there would be a descendant of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. Which means that all the promises come to fruition in him. All the promises are anticipated in the birth of a child. All of the promises begin to be realized as human procreation takes place. Kenneth Matthews, a commentator, says, Circumcision of the male's foreskin as a sign and seal is especially fitting for the covenant's orientation towards future generations. It's a constant reminder that that is the way God is going to bless, that that is the way God's going to fulfill his promises, is through sexual reproduction. Constantly being seen through circumcision. So that's the first reason I think God does that. The second is that it visually conveys the idea of removing and discarding. I won't get too visual here, but that is the idea. It gives us the notion of removing and discarding. And it has the ultimate meaning of removing sin from one's heart. So let me read a few passages from the scriptures that sort of fill this out for you. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. And then listen to the language. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Well, there's no foreskin on the heart. It's metaphorical. Telling us that circumcision physically is a picture of this circumcision of the heart. A removal of something from the heart. And then he goes on to say, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire... And burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. In other words, what God is saying is remove the evil deeds from your heart. As Jesus will say, all evil comes from the heart. So by circumcising the heart, what are you doing? You're removing the evil deeds and you're casting them from you. Visualized, of course, through circumcision. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. See, it's a repeated idea in the Old Testament. And be no longer stubborn. Stubbornness, sin in the heart. Circumcise it from yourself. And Paul will say very explicitly that this circumcision of the heart is the true circumcision. The reality behind the sign. What matters is the circumcision of the heart. That's the reality behind the sign. So Colossians 2, 11 to 13, Paul says, In him also you were circumcised, in Christ that is, 
you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Listen to how he defines that. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So what does it mean to have an uncircumcised heart? It means to be dead in your trespasses. To have a circumcised heart is to be made alive because sin has been put away from you. It's been discarded. And I think Kent Hughes provides two additional reasons why circumcision is a fitting sign of the covenant. So first, it's the reproductive aspect. Second, we saw that it visualizes what we are to do in our hearts. But then I want to give you two other reasons. One is that it involves the shedding of blood. So every time a little eight-day-old child is circumcised, they're going to bleed. And Abraham, at 99 years old, that would have been painful, would have been bloody. And 13-year-old Ishmael would have been bloody. It's a little surgical procedure. And it reminds us that God's covenant comes through blood, the blood of his son. And then finally, it is irrevocable. It is irrevocable. The covenant is irrevocable, so the sign is irrevocable. You don't undo it. You don't undo circumcision. It's done. And so it's meant to communicate that as well. And maybe you'll come up with some other reasons and find those. But these are at least some ways for us to begin. If circumcision for you has always been this weird, very strange mystery... Maybe that helps you understand a little bit more where this is coming from in the Bible. Why is it that God would have the sign of his covenant be this? And as Christians, there are two major things that we should consider about this circumcision. So we've answered the question where it comes from, but now we have to ask the question, what do we do with this as Christians today? And I think there are two considerations that we have to have. First, it does not teach that people are made right with God by their works. It's not as though God told Abraham, you be circumcised and then I will approve of you and then you will be my servant. No, it was a sign and a seal of Abraham's faith. Abraham was not made right with God by the work of circumcision, by doing a religious act, by doing a practice. He was already right with God at the beginning of chapter 15 when it said, that God counted his faith as righteousness. So listen to the words of Paul. Romans 4, 11 to 12. He says this. He received the sign of circumcision. Speaking of Abraham. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So God counted Abraham's faith to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. He didn't earn God's favor by being circumcised. He trusted in God and God counted him righteous. So what does this mean for us? 
Well, let me say it this way. If something as significant as circumcision in the history of redemption, in the history of God's workings with his people, if something as significant and clearly commanded here by God, if you don't do it, you're cut off. If something this significant cannot save, then why would we place any saving power in our religious acts? What are you thinking this morning can save you? What are you thinking you have to do? You have to do one more thing and then God will accept you. And then God will look at you and say, okay, that person's right. Now, I mean, it's, it's the classic thing. You talk to people, you ask, you know, are you a Christian? And I've heard this time and time again, I'm trying. Whoa. No, you don't try to be a Christian. You trust Christ. And he reforms, transforms your life. And he counts you righteous in his sight through his blood. Works do not save. Only faith in God's promises through the finished work of Christ can save you. The second consideration for us as Christians, why aren't we circumcised? The physical sign of circumcision was a means that God used to set the nation of Israel apart and dedicate them to himself. After Christ, we understand that what matters is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So listen to what Paul says. There's a group of Christians there in Galatia, and they're thinking that in order to become Christians, they have to get circumcised because that's what will please God. That's what will put the seal on them. That's what will really make them Christians. And this is what Paul has to say to those Gentile believers. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what matters. That's what circumcision is about. And in Christ, that's what you must be. A new creation. In Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So let me ask you this morning. Are you circumcised? It's a weird question. Let me ask it again. Is your heart circumcised? Your heart is either circumcised or uncircumcised this very morning, this very moment. Which is it? Are you a new creation? Is faith working through love in your life? This is the way we know whether or not we have a circumcised or an uncircumcised heart. Have we been made new? Have you just been kind of moving along ever since you were a kid and nothing's ever changed in your life? You grew up in a Christian home and you just kind of, you just kind of a, a, adopted it or you, you sort of it just, you just accepted it at some point in a general kind of way. You've just been moving along. You've never been transformed by God. You've never, you've never received conversion. You've never been going one direction and turned around and started going another. Your mind's just always been the same. It's an uncircumcised heart. You must remove the sin from your heart. Cast it aside. Trust in Christ to be saved. But prior to the coming of Christ and the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles, this sign of circumcision was to be kept, as it says here, diligently in every household and among all the people without fail. I want to turn now to the last two, which we're going to go over more briefly. And that is the son 
and the servant. Let's look at these latter verses. Verses 15 to 27. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house Those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. The big idea that I want you to see here is that God, with this idea of the son, is that God at this point makes clear that the son of Hagar is not the child of promise. In case you were wondering, right, God didn't tell us in chapter 16, Ishmael is not it. It wasn't explicit. It was implicit as you see what the angel of the Lord says to Hagar about his future. But it wasn't explicit. And here God makes it very clear. Ishmael is not the child of promise. The son of Hagar is not the child of the covenant. Not the child of promise. Instead, it will be the son of Sarai. In other words, it will be the son of human impossibility and divine power. Do you hear that? It will be the son of human impossibility and divine power. Not the son of your own ingenuity. Not the son of your own craftiness. Not the son of your own schemes. Not the son of the flesh. But the son of the promise and of power. Ishmael will be blessed, but he is not the child of the covenant. Isaac is. Isaac means he laughs because here Abraham laughs and and people debate whether Abraham is laughing out of disrespect. Is he mocking God? I don't think so. He falls on his face. He's on his face. We don't, the the image is not of, of Abraham laughing in the way maybe Sarah does later. She gets rebuked for that. But here Abraham does not. And some have said, well, this is, this is a laugh of amazement and joy. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God now reveals everything to Abraham. The son will come through the barren and aged Sarah, and this will happen in one year. Imagine, this is incredible. Piece by piece, God has been building this story for Abraham, not giving him all the details at one time, but forcing him to trust. And maybe that's you 
this morning, maybe in your life, you are in a place right now where God is not revealing everything to you about what he's going to do, how he's going to work. And you just have to trust him now with what he has revealed to you. He'll reveal more to you in his time according to his wisdom because he knows your heart. He knows what you'll do with that information if he gives it to you too early. So here we see a full disclosure. To mark the reality of this promise of a son to Sarai, God changes her name to Sarah. And both of these names mean princess. As Kent Hughes says, it was God's plan all along that she would be a princess because princesses have kings. And through Sarah would be born the king of kings. As we finish up this morning, let's look finally at the servant. We've seen the scope, the sign, the sun. Now we need to look at the servant. Verses 22 to 27, we just read those verses. There is one word that sums up Abraham's response. It's very simple. Obedience. And it's incredible how the text reads in these final verses. It's like a little capstone on this story. What does Abraham do? Verse 23, as God had said to him. We, we saw that with Noah. Remember with Noah? As God said to him, Noah did. As God said to him, he obeyed God's word. And that's what Abraham does. He doesn't just obey. He obeys immediately. Do you see what the text says? Verse 23, that very day. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to sleep on this because this is not going to feel good. He doesn't sleep on it. He does it that very day, despite the discomfort. And imagine his 13-year-old son. Why, Dad? (laughs) Why? He's got to do it that very day. This obedience, we need to understand, comes from a heart of faith. Chapter 15. And we must see a heart of awe. Verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. What, 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 what precedes this obedience? This is what I want you to see. At the beginning of the narrative, what do we have? We have a man on his face. It is a man on his face who obeys. Do we understand that? In all your New Year's resolutions, all that long list of things that you're going to do now as a Christian, because that's what God wants you to do. The place to be is on your face, because that's where resolutions will happen and actually be implemented with consistency and discipline, all those wonderful things you want to do, they, they spring out of an on-our-faceness before God. And that's exactly what we have here with Abram. Abraham. Deep respect, deep trust in God. And finally, we can't miss this very important truth. Undoubtedly, as Alan Ross says, a commentator on Genesis, undoubtedly the sure word of God prompted his compliance. What does this teach us? An obedient life will be a life that is saturated in God's sure and trustworthy promises. If you don't have that very clear sense of what God has said to you in this word, and a very clear understanding that he can be trusted, you won't obey him. 
because you have, no, you have nothing there driving you forward. You have nothing there pushing your obedience forward. It's the reason why all of the epistles begin with this lofty truth of what God has done for us in Christ. And then out of that, he then gets into how you speak and where you go and what you do and how you treat your, your servants and how you treat your wife and how you treat your... And so forth. All of the practical This is the problem with technique preaching and self-help Christianity is that all of the techniques and the things we need to do and what it means to be obedient to God flow directly out of these weighty promises of God which tell us who He is and that He can always be trusted. Let's pray. Our Father, we glorify You This morning you have brought this world into a new year. You are patient with mankind. Long ago, you could have destroyed the world in your wrath against sin. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned against you. The moment they became rebels. And all of us spring from them with rebel hearts. But God, you have poured out your goodness on creation once again. Seed time and harvest, seasons continue. The sun still shines. The rain still pours. A world full of unbelief and rebellion against your glory. And in the midst of it all, Father, you have shown special grace to those of us who call you Father. We praise you, God, that we do not move into this new year on our own. We do not set out the goals of life, resolutions, in a way that is built on human reliance and raw discipline. But we do it in light of who you are and what you've promised us. And so, God, we pray that that would be our year, that we would glorify you this year, that we would make much of you, in every way, because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not a Christian, that you would bring grace to them, that you would change their hearts, that they would hear the call to turn from sin and trust Jesus and stop trusting in themselves or in a world that gives them no hope. Would we build our lives on the rock and not on sinking sand? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.